Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said, once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games out there that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on, and it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to talk to people who... You know, enjoy playing the games that we all like to play, talk about what those games are. It's to talk about big industry events and to talk to the people who create these games. Now, today, it is a little bit of a combination of the last two one of those, and we have some very special guests on to talk about an upcoming Kickstarter book that is about to go live on the Kickstarter that we all know and love to give us a new and exciting book of scenarios, information. Uh, Man, it is exciting, and I can't wait to talk to the guys about it, but if you were excited about the Italy Soft Underbelly campaign book by Warlord Games, man, this is going to blow your mind. And if we're going to talk the Battle of Primazole Bridge... We got to talk to the guys from Valhalla Games. Dan, Rex, welcome to Cast Dice. Brad, how are you? It's great to be here. It's uh, amazing to be in esteemed company of the various guests you've had on. Thank you. Well, you know, I'm just one schmuck with a mic, but the other guys who come on this show are pretty special, like y'all. Now, you guys have your own podcast, obviously, Valhalla Games, Um, and I've been following your episodes through YouTube. And you guys have done a wonderful uh, series on what we're going to be talking about today. So if when you are listening to this podcast today and you think, man, I'd really like to know more about that. And if, you know, in the run up to the books, actually production and uh, if you want to know more as you're getting ready, man, you guys set out two really long, well-researched and yet interesting the, the narrative is laid down. There's lots of great questions that you talk through along the way. And I really got a feel for this the campaign almost. It's, it's a battle, I guess. But the way this book is broken down into 11 different scenarios, it feels a lot more than a battle. The, you guys have put a lot of work into this. Yeah, thanks, Brad. Uh, Dan and I have, uh, it's definitely been a passion project for us. It's been three years since uh, since Dan uh, let me in on the secret of the Battle of Primasol Bridge mm-hmm. because I had never actually heard about it up until then. It is uh, it is the most amazing story that, uh, that you'll ever hear of World War II, I think at least, and it's just so unexpected. Um, now I guess if you're wanting uh, if you're wanting the full detail of that, then absolutely have a listen to Valhalla Games podcast episode three A and B. Bit of a bit of a a, a, a drop promotion there mm-hmm. for our uh, for our podcast. Hope we can get away with that. But uh, certainly it's uh, it's a real roller coaster. And the the funny thing about that podcast is that is that as I said, I didn't I didn't know what was coming. I had never mm-hmm. heard of it before. And Dan actually led me through it piece by piece. As we were, as and, and the story was unfolding, and I'm on the edge of my seat, going, mm-hmm. "What is going to happen next? This is just <laughs> crazy." So yeah, it's a, it's a great story for sure. But because one of you had heavily researched it, and the other one of you was new to the topic, it it really it was a it was a great fresh conversation, and the questions that you were asking were authentic, and it really made for a really rich listen and man i was painting fins yesterday and digging that it was 
It was it was grade A bolt action. Love is what that was. Let's get into that. Now, Dan, how did you find out about it's almost what? The other bridge too far? The Bridge Too Far Part 1, the prelude to A Bridge Too Far. <laughs> uh, well, there's a lot of different ways we can go with this. The Italian campaign, while important to the war in Europe, wasn't or isn't one of the things that is often focused on. People often talk about the war in the desert. People talk about D-Day Plus. People talk about you know maybe the Pacific campaign. But we don't often dig into Italy outside of maybe Monte Cassino. Can you talk to us a little bit more about how Italy came to the fore for you? And I know Italy, the Italian national rules in the bolt action universe aren't exactly the most popular. And I think that has unfortunately led to a lot of people going, ah, Italy, moving on. But man, there's so much in there, especially since a lot of what we're going to be talking today are allied forces against Germans and Italians, there's a there's just so much to this. So what brought you to this? Yeah, thanks, Brad. It, uh, very good point. I think it has been a forgotten part of the war in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of the campaign supplements that have been out there for war gamers have not really scratched the surf, or have just scratched the surface and haven't really gone into them as much detail as really the campaigns in Sicily and Italy um, are, are really, uh, I guess, worthy of. Some of the things that happened there, I mean, when you look at the the Sicilian campaign itself, I mean, we just had um, the victory in Tunisia and then the movement through Sicily into Italy. I mean, some of the things that happened in Sicily, it's the the largest fleet that's been ever assembled, something like 3,200 mm-hmm. vessels, um, the Allied fleet. And that's, the, uh, and that's ever assembled either. That's ever assembled past and future. So even now, the largest fleet, unbelievable. And that takes, I mean, everyone thinks D-Day, not Sicily. I mean, that, that right? They, that is not what you'd expect. Yeah, correct. Um, so there's um, really fantastic learnings to be from that as well. I guess mm. the, the, uh, the jointness, the, the joint warfare between the various services there, um, air, land, and naval, there was a lot to be learned there. And when you look at the lessons we learned, especially from the amphibious landings on Sicily as well, um, I mean, previous to Sicily, there'd only really been two amphibious landings as such, and one was in Madagascar, mm-hmm. and the other one was at Dieppe. Now, Madagascar was a close-run thing and a, and a very um, a very odd campaign, but uh, some definitely some lessons are learned there, and, and more so that, than could be applied at Dieppe due to the short time difference, but uh, Dieppe was a disaster. So in actual fact, a lot of the... Um, I guess a lot of the, the lessons that were learnt and were applied on D-Day were actually learnt in Sicily. That's right. And I guess that's why s- some of the uh, generals for the Allies advocated for the campaign through Sicily is to not only give the, the Allies time to upskill, because um, there was a lot of inexperience, uh, but it was also, as I think you've said on your podcast, there was a lot of leadership that had to be developed uh, for that for the the full invasion of Europe to really kick off because a lot of people especially in the US military uh, and not to disparage US military leaders there was just a, a very widespread of personalities and skills that ran across the service and 
some needed seasoning, um, some needed time to figure out what they were, how how they really worked. Uh, maybe because they had jumped up two to three ranks um, just in the rapid expansion prior to the U.S. actually putting boots on the ground in World War II. That's absolutely right, Brad. And uh, I suppose you're also looking as well in the birth of various divisions and formations in the way they fought as well. I mean, right. Sicily was really the blooding for the, the American Airborne. Um, look at the 82nd there. Um, also, uh, I guess, the interoperability between the Americans and the British is, or the remainder of the Allies as well. Um, Americans bringing a lot of the resources to the fore. For instance, this is the first campaign, the first opportunity for the, uh, the British um, and later on the Allies, but to, to operate in, in parachuting from the side of an aircraft, mm -hmm. um, from the from the Dakota aircraft, the C-47. Prior to that, they've been jumping through a, a, a hole in the in the fuselage of Whitley bombers, um, ringing the bell, so to speak, jumping through and hoping to time it just right so they didn't smash their face on the back of the fuselage oh. in the jumping and knock themselves out as they um, carried out the uh, the exit from the plane. Having jumped out of a perfectly good aircraft once in my life, I rolled out of the <laughs> side of one with a, with a very large human attached to the back of me that pushed. I cannot imagine trying to jump out of the bottom of one trying to duck at the same time. No. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I suppose part of the reason, another reason that excites me, I suppose, I'm looking at the airborne facet of this operation, which really goes into our book, is because I was in the British Parachute Regiment as well. I've, I've been a professional soldier for most of my life. Um, I still am having had a period of out of the army and now I'm back in again. So um, having been in the New Zealand Army, then going over and joining the British Parachute Regiment as part of my regimental history, learning about this. And when it first got the story got delivered to us in our learnings as a young paratrooper in depot, um, I heard about this and I, I was actually struck um, because I'd known very little about it before I learned about it. And then having been told a bit more of the story, it struck me as we led into this, the similarities between this operation, uh, Operation Fuston, Operation uh, Market Garden, or, or specifically Operation Market, and the Airborne Forces Operation in 1944, which was just over a year later. And the <laughs> And the similarities of the two capturing a bridge in order to hold it for the uh, the ground advance to, to catch up to them. And then mm -hmm. the failings, the failings of, I guess, both forces to recognize um, this, the need for speed and the need to understand the commander's intent and just carry out that intent rather than uh, operating by the book. Um, it was really fascinating for me. Yeah, especially since they had such, there was such adverse conditions to get them onto the ground in the first place. I mean, it's not every day that you are flying across in, you know, the the sea of bombers uh, and aircraft to deliver you. Um, I guess not bombers, uh, transport planes, and um, you know, friendly fire puts a good chunk of your aircraft out of commission. Uh, and or forces them back. Meanwhile, that just points to the enemy. Oh, by the way, there are sh things we should be shooting at. Um, and, you know, having your uh, arrival announced in such a spectacular and unpleasant fashion just made it worse for everything. Well, that's um, that's one of the things that, that really makes us such a unique engagement, uh, Brad, is that this is the only time up to this point uh, in, where two parachute 
forces actually parachute into the same area mm -hmm. at the same time, completely unbeknown to each other. So your, your normal situation is, uh, you know, if you take as in Market Garden, you've got the British parachuting behind enemy lines, which is bad enough. You've got them uh, arriving poorly supplied, scattered and penny packets, having to gather themselves together and uh, form some sort of a cohesive fighting force, hopefully find the actual objective and then finally actually fight for it. Uh, and, and in this situation, you've actually got uh, the British landing more or less the same time as the German Falschermager. And so they are uh, adversaries from Tunisia and uh, both very, very uh, aggressive fighting forces and, uh, and, and well, uh, uh, well versed in the, in the art of warfare. And by that, by this stage, um, by the time they realize what's going on, the, the engagement, you know, Operation Fustian is well underway and every man has to make the best of, uh, the best of what he can under extremely adverse conditions. Now, I'm glad you mentioned the Falschmeier because I was, I was heading in that direction. And that is important while the Italians are part of this and the British do defeat the Italian forces that were holding the bridge in the area around that, the hills, uh, Johnny 1, 2, and 3. Um, to take them initially, the Falschmeier then are also there, and they actually got there first. The British were not expecting this, and the Falschmeier weren't exactly expecting the British to arrive the way they did either, to the point where when the planes were first coming overhead, was it the, the second, second battalion? Um, they actually, the Falschmeier thought that they were their reinforcements being dropped, and it wasn't until they saw the color of the parachutes that they realized, oh no, and the, the shooting started. Correct. Yes, they, uh, the Falschmeagers started landing their first. They were uh, split into three main groups and then reinforcements come later due to, I suppose, the availability of aircraft and, um, and, and, I suppose, tactical loading and stuff like that. So the first Falschmeager came into the, the drop zones on the 11th of July. The second group of uh, Falschmeager and airborne troops landed at the airport on the 12th. And then the the the, uh, the third group were to be reinforced um, by parachute insertion on the 13th. So they were expecting their arrival of their colleagues, um, their fellow paratroopers, looking up. And yes, when they saw the planes coming, or heard the planes coming, especially when the Allied fleet uh, opened fire on the flotilla of planes, they did think it was their own planes coming. It was only when they realised that uh, they saw the colour of the chutes. Um, which is something that the Germans didn't normally have, they realised that it was the, the British. So in that respect, they had a slight advantage in that they realised once they saw that, that it was British on the ground. Now, the, the Falschmeager created a screen around the the, uh, the general vicinity and then left the, um, the Italians of the Coastal Division, 213 Coastal Division, um, to guard the heights of the Johnny 1, 2 and 3 features and they dominated the approach from the south, where the British were coming from, and uh, they dominated the bridge itself. And they also were holding Primasol Bridge itself as well. And the Falschmeager threw a screen out, in particular to the south, and they had uh, a Falschmeager battalion, but also a machine gun battalion there as well, a full-strength machine gun battalion. And that's what was arriving, uh, that's what had arrived, and they were awaiting the British, but the British did not realize this because on the planning and the launching of the operation, as far as they knew, they were facing Italian conscripts. 
And that is definitely not what they got. Well, at least not in the <laughs> long run. Uh, that is what they got initially, though. Now, let's talk a little bit about the bridge itself. I mean, we're laying out a bit of a narrative, but I think we should probably, now that we're at the bridge, have a discussion. Why was it important, and why was everyone diving for it at once? Clearly, the Germans saw that it was um, tactically important because they deployed the the Falschmeger, uh into that area to to block possible uh, insertion slash invasion, and clearly the Allies wanted it for a reason. Can we go into why that bridge and why that area? I guess first thing to say is that um, because of Dan's fantastic research into all of this, all of this information is obviously expanded on and contained uh, in the book itself. So we mm-hmm. actually have a really large... Um, section on the the history actually building up to it um and just the general the general situation in the theater and then specifically operation fustian and the bridge and all that sort of stuff so even if uh even if you don't get uh, your appetite wetted enough from here and possibly go and listen to the podcast all this information's in the book as well uh, and some of the stories particularly in the book of individual soldiers mm-hmm. and individual efforts make such a such a huge effort but yes sorry go on dan tell us about the uh the bridge and the strategic reasons for why we want it in the first place yeah i think that's a great point rex that no one has to be basically a historian going into this that we've we do describe this story in depth but we also have the background in there we've got the background of i guess the backdrop of op husky with the needs to know going into this and we've we've cherry picked information within op husky to build the picture going into the primisole bridge campaign but the, the bridge itself was strategically important because it was on the main highway 114 on the eastern side of the island of Sicily. Um, it was going north towards Catania, towards Mount Etna, basically, and continuing the, uh, the main supply route towards Messina, which was really the, the vital place that the Allies wanted to capture and hopefully cut the Germans off where they could withdraw into the mainland Italy. Now, um, the Catania Plains were essential for manoeuvre because there was a, uh, I guess, a, a thread of streams going across the plains um, to this on the southern end of them. And the Primisole Bridge was the only bridge across the Semito River that was capable of carrying, of taking the weight of uh, tanks and armoured fighting vehicles across it. Now, it's interesting because when you fight for a bridge, um, quite often from a war gamer's perspective, it can get a little bit boring because mm-hmm. you've got a bridge in the middle of the table and you're sitting there and if you're lucky, your weapons reach the other side when you're firing them. <laughs> We've all heard those arguments. Oh, yeah. Now, the Primisole Bridge was very interesting um, from a wargaming perspective, and this is why I started seeing the um, the possibilities as a campaign and as a, a playable scenario to do with the actual bridge itself because the, the Sumito River was actually fordable by infantry. It had a very muddy bottom, however, and it's that muddy bottom that made it unfordable by vehicles, be they either they tracked or wheeled vehicles. So the bridge was absolutely vital. The Allies needed to capture that, needed to capture it intact. Um, so they basically designed a, a plan around a more or less a coup de main, laying, um, landing troops on both sides, drop zones and gliders on both sides of the bridge to capture both ends at once and also capture the high ground dominating at the Johnny features that we spoke about. And they're, they're nicknamed the Johnny features um, after the second parachute battalion's commander. Rex, and that, you got something to add on that? And that, um, and that, that sort of situation, when you, start, when you start talking about those sort of limitations and that friction in the battle where, yes, you've got a bridge, 
So yes, you've got a river, but you can cross that river, but you can't run across it because you're, you're fording it. Um, you're, you're knee deep in mud and water. You can't get your vehicles across it. Um, that just, to me, just completely blows my mind in terms of potential scenarios. I can start, you know, my brain starts clicking over and, and thinking, wow, you know, look, Look at the situations with that and in terms of strategy. So you've got two guys, you know, sitting down on either side of the table. What what are you going to do? Are you going to push your vehicles across? Are you going to you're going to do this? You're going to do that? You know, you're Paris, so you don't have vehicles normally as a starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sort of thing, that's what really caught my attention in terms of the of the possibilities for scenarios. And there's there's lots more which I'm sure we'll go on to. Absolutely. Now, as we're going to get through, what we're getting kind of covered so far is the sort of preamble the player, so to speak, bringing it all to the battlefield. And now we have the actual battle around not only the bridge, but those three hills, the Johnny features that we've been talking about. Now, with this book that you guys have put together that will be going to Kickstarter tomorrow, uh, or today, depending on when you're listening to this, we have 11 scenarios that break down that situation. Now, As we've talked about, um, you guys brought up, there is some brilliant background information that really sets the stage and really helped me to understand where we were going as far as someone who wasn't familiar with this particular battle, um, this area of the war even. It really set, I I knew the players, I knew who was involved, and I got a feel for the, the forces that were being deployed. Then we have... The, the 11 scenarios that break things down um, so you're able to play out each part of the battle. But what I really like about this book, it in a way, it, it, it's the best part of the campaign books that we know and love in Bolt Action um, in that you give us everything we need, the, the beautiful maps, the diagrams, everything's labeled. You have the, a layout of what the objectives are, who is going to be deployed, what needs to be done, but this works for any miniature game system. Now, you say that it works predominantly for 28 millimeter, but it also works for 15 millimeter, right? Like, this is an awesome book. I love it. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. That's a big, uh, big compliment. Yeah, we've, I mean, we play a lot of bold action, but we also play Chain of Command. Um, Rex has been an exponent of playing Flames of War in the past as well. Mm-hmm. Um, So we really wanted to create a game system, a game supplement, a campaign book for people that could play any of these games, pick them up. So we created, I suppose, an independent generic um, point of view where if you are paying, um, if you're paying 28 millimeter, well, you you don't have to do anything in regards to scales. And I'd say that would be relevant in regards to 20 millimeter and 15 millimeter. In actual fact, 15 millimeter, the ranges in the book are probably, one could argue, more realistic than those at 28 millimeter. I've heard that argument many times, yes. (laughs) But um, so in reality, you could pick it up and you could play it in six mil or 10 mil and just review it uh, as a player and speak to your opponent in the campaign and just say to them, hey, what do you think about these ranges? how does it reflect our um, rule set that we're using, our chosen game system that we want to play this with? And the only thing you'd have to change really is um, just uh, plonk your terrain down there, review the, the, the uh, I suppose, deployment zones and check ranges and distances and check see if they're relevant. There'd be very little that was required in actual fact to use with any game system. And that's why we feel it's particularly relevant. But we felt that it was it was right just to say to people, you know, it works best with 15 or 28 millimeters that those those groups of people really have to do 
nothing, so to speak, to, right. to pick it up and use it. Yeah, and, and uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. And we're uh, we're sort of saying that uh, it's perfect for 15 to 28 millimeter and a card chit or dice activation type system. So, um, so as Dan said, we play a lot of bolt action. We play a lot of other things as well, uh, and some of them aren't even World War Two. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. you know, it's it's a book that can be a reference to anybody. But uh, those players uh, that listen to your pod your podcast are a lot of bold action players, and they're going to feel right at home with this book. Absolutely, and I think the um, when you look at the card, I mean, a lot of people who play bolt action and may not have played um, what we see as more traditional ways of experimenting with random activation might not realise that it actually a the bolt action order die is is an actual fact, really a a, a um. Uh, is taken from the old card activation system. Mm -hmm. And we've taken that a little bit further in here and regressed slightly because in some ways, in some scenarios, we wanted to provide even more um, resource management and uh, command challenges there by actually saying to people, use some cards in this scenario because we want you to not be able to choose which unit you can activate. So we've mm -hmm. suggested some mechanics there that are more pertinent for a spe you know, particular scenarios, in particular reflecting the arrival of scattered troops after mm -hmm. an airborne drop. And yeah, Rex, I, particularly, I particularly like that uh, that campaign that you're referring to, Dan, which is uh, scattered to the four winds, I believe. And as you say, yeah, it reflects the, the airborne drop and the, and the response by the Falschermega just individual patrol patrols out looking for uh, for isolated groups of British powers to take out. And uh, so you don't necessarily, as a wargamer, get the opportunity to say, hey, I'm going to take, uh, you know, these guys and these guys and those guys, and I'm going to put this guy here because it's strategically the best place. This is, I guess, playing a real-life type of thing just for this one scenario to make it a bit of, bit of fun where you actually di get dictated where this unit, this particular unit here, actually gets deployed in this spot. Make the best of it, mm -hmm. platoon leader, because you don't have a choice. And so that's, uh, you know, it's really, it's different. And that's what we try to do, I guess, is with the scenarios, is, as we say, 11 scenarios, um, 11 quite well interconnected scenarios and some mm -hmm. are direct flows on, flow on from each other. Of course, you can play them as individual games as mm -hmm. well. But um, I think the most fun has had is, is playing playing those in the campaign and we've tried to give you things that aren't just kind of samey okay you you, you choose a you know a thousand points or, or this all bad or, or whatever you do it and you choose that thousand points or that all bad and we just run at each other from either side of the uh either side of the the table um and let the best man win whereas with this scenario you don't get that it's something completely different and it challenges people in different armies and different uh you know, different generals, I guess, on the uh, looking at the tabletop, approach things from a different point of view. So we get some really, uh, some really unpredictable and fun outcomes in some of the scenarios based on uh, based on the parameters that are set for them. Exactly. Now, in the newest Italy, the Soft Underbelly Campaign Book, I mean, in there you have a series of scenarios that run through sort of the early part of the Italian campaign, but and. And if you go to number four, it's actually the battle from Primazole Bridge. And you can actually play that out. However, what you've done is taken that and you've pulled it apart into 11 pieces. But it's not just 11 scenarios on top of the bridge. It's, it's the whole 
the whole conflict in that area. And it really does, I mean, so often with the campaign books, and they're great, I do love them, you see missions that highlight particularly famous engagements. However, I almost feel like that sometimes I would like some scenarios that maybe are a little less epic or, or on the, the, the periphery of those battles. And I feel like this book does that beautifully. Yeah, so Dan and I both got our uh, our soft underbelly books in the last couple of days, actually, mm-hmm. and uh, and of course we turned uh, we turned to that scenario first to say, <laughs> see, you know, w- what what have they got in there? What's interesting? And mm-hmm. and Dan said, I think sums it up and said, you know, that's a that's a great scenario. That's really as good as you can do with one scenario. Right. And um, Rob but- Rob Vila has done a wonderful job with that book. Uh, and um, just a little spoiler, kids, we will be talking about that on an upcoming episode of the Warlord Games official podcast. Stay tuned. Great. Well, Games will be listening to that for sure. And isn't it great that uh, everybody's got their uh, their Italians in the process of being painted up mm-hmm. and those uh, those Mediterranean Folchimaga? Um, that's uh, that's, <laughs> that's a, right. a fantastic thing for us. But uh, but yeah, Dan, I don't know if you want to expand on that, but that was that was our conversation. But one of the things that we did was uh, we went down to the I guess the uh, the micro side of things. Is that how to how to phrase it? Where we you know the individual stories are so so interesting, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that well, from the outset when we decided we wanted to do this, we said that there had been other publications in the past. There's going to be other publications in the future, but from these big um, I guess producers of this sort of stuff that they, they need to focus at what level they need to focus at and and really sometimes we saw and this is not a reflection of the latest book necessarily but sometimes we've seen they're more or less a series of battles that weren't in fact linked but they were just in the same theater mm-hmm. or the same broad I guess operational level um, that that Sicily was and so we really wanted to delve into it as an independent we felt like this campaign can really do what those books can't, and we've really wanted to have focus in there. Because when you come down to the engagements, there are so many engagements that are perfect for the platoon-level games that lend themselves to like um, Chain of Command, Bolt Action, mm-hmm. and other platoon-level games out there that that uh, some of these scenarios don't do. Well, when you look at the battle for the assault on Johnny One, in uh, in the actual battle. Um, uh, Lieutenant Tony Frank, who was a, you know took command of the assault, actually up the hill, up the feature, um, he attacked with literally a platoon of guys because that's all Second Parachute Battalion had available, mm-hmm. and they, they were against um, they were against fighting at any one time. There was probably uh, a couple of platoons worth of Italians, and they had others, um, uh, I guess, in different parts of that hill, um, in the caves and so on and so forth. And we've also incorporated that into that uh, that scenario too, mm-hmm. spoilers. Um, and we think that's something people are going to love. But when you look at engagements like that and the fact that less than 240 paratroopers, um, other ranks and something like 11 officers mm-hmm. out of a whole brigade – um, they, that was all that actually made it to the bridge to hold it, the bridge and the features overlooking it from, um, you know, a, a false mega regiment plus other regimental assets as well. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because there were so few paratroopers that landed, one of the, and that really put them against the wall to start with, let alone the Falschmeger actually being there. One of the things that did go right that first day was that, a few of the 
anti-tank assets actually arrived via glider. You actually, now we mentioned vehicles before, and yes, the Germans do use trucks uh, a number of times and other vehicles as this moves forward in the form of uh, assault guns. But the British actually had a couple of Jeeps and some anti-tank assets as far as anti-tank guns that they were using. One of them actually almost clips the bridge in landing. Correct. Yes, one of them did. It literally clipped the bridge and landed about 130 metres away uh, to the west of the bridge after hitting it. Um, when it got there, however, the normal uh, ability to, to blow the charge and blow the tail off the glider to let the airborne jeep, the cut-down jeep, come out with the ammunition and the six-pounder anti-tank gun wasn't, um, it didn't function. So what happened was uh, some of the uh, the infantry ran over to the glider um, after their initial engagements and they started hacking at it with the axes and so on that the, the glider had in it. And they managed to cut the jeep out and the six-pounder gun and they managed to get it onto the, onto the uh, end of the bridge and uh, get it dug in, which was handy because uh, the Germans had a number of vehicles, including mm -hmm. some... Um, some uh, self-propelled or a self-propelled gun from Kampfgruppe Schmaltz, which was a uh, detachment from the Hermann Göring Panzer Division, mm -hmm. um, came to reinforce the Falschmäger later in the battle. Spoilers there. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, there are epic moments in this battle. I mean, from the the initial charge that took the Italians by surprise, the Italians on the bridge by such surprise that they were able to not only take one side of the bridge very quickly they actually without calling in their reinforcements they charged forward again and grabbed the other side at one time before going back and saying okay now you come on um they were able to really capitalize on that surprise to take the bridge itself which meant that they also had access to the pill bunkers on either side and those fortifications unfortunately those fortifications that they needed to hold weren't exactly meant for a size of force. Even though they had a limited number of, of soldiers, the fortifications weren't enough to properly defend them. Well, one of the, uh, one of the issues is that uh, later on in the battle, uh, the Germans brought up 88s. Mm -hmm. Now, we're, not talking, we're talking 88s here with the, uh, the six-kilometer range, and they, they didn't bring them up and fire at them six-kilometer range in a, in a nice uh, parabolic arc. They actually direct fired them against these pillboxes with the British inside at uh, 200 meters, Dan? Yeah, 200 meters. When you look at the uh, historic photographs we dug up, yeah, they're, um, they were on the forward, the southern side of Casa de Stefano, which is a farm building at the northern end of the bridge. So um, less than 200 meters range direct fire into the British positions. And that, that brings up another point, actually, Dan, when you're talking about photos, um, that's one of the things that we've, we've been so lucky with, with you being a... Uh, uh, being a British para, we've had access to photos that uh, that other people might not have had access to, uh, courtesy of uh, a number of museums and and places. And so we've actually got photos in there of, as you say, the the wreckage of those those buildings and uh, and some other stuff too. One of the glider that you mentioned before, Brad. Um, you know, I think that's 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 out there. People have seen that before. But there's a there's a picture of the actual glider um, where it came to rest in the background of the bridge. And you know that combined with the with the maps that we have in the book, or the one particular map that we have in the book, um, really tell the story and allow you to envisage what's going on. And and if you so desire, um, set up your uh, set up your table uh, to match as as closely as as you want to the actual historical layout of the battle and really really get the feel for it. It's full immersion wargaming. 
Yeah, and, and just to talk to that, a big thank you. Um, I suppose as I got some extra assistance, perhaps um, people did tend to go a little bit further than they, they might do for some general inquiries um, due to my um, service in the parachute regiment at the Air Assault, uh, Airborne Assault Museum. So thank you very much um, to the people there. And they did give us access to everything and, and we have reproduced some maps. So one of the maps that, um, that Rex touched on uh, briefly is in the book we have reproduced for you an original map that was in the battle um, for Primasol Bridge, complete with little mud stains, fold marks mm -hmm. and so on. Um, now that map was produced by the first Airborne Division headquarters immediately prior to the, the battle. And actually, instead of seeing a normal grid square, what you do see is that has been broken down by the uh, divisional planners, the cartographers there, and that each grid square is actually broken down further into literally into its uh, grids, um, subgrid square, so to speak. So if you gave a, a grid reference, normally you wouldn't have lines within a grid square. Mm -hmm. But in so doing, you've now got this map and you can literally lay out your battlefield, your terrain, absolutely perfectly according to the battlefield on that terrain. And we have produced that in the book for you. We've reproduced it. And what we've done is we've taken each scenario, we've numbered a box, and we've placed the block box over top of that map. So you can see the exact grounds, the exact layout for your terrain on that table. So your six by four table or uh, or larger in some of the scenarios, if you choose to go that way, is actually represented by the box on the map. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because this is actually one of my future talking points. The art in this book, I mean, if you're used to playing bolt action, you're used to flipping through bolt action books and seeing you know, some of the great art that they have from Osprey Games and seeing some great pictures of painted miniatures, usually fairly close up so you can see the detail of the models. What I love about your book is not only do you have some sensational paintings, there's one in there, British Paratroopers by Kevin Smith, um, sorry, Ken Smith, and you have these maps that really help you to know where things are happening. And you have the diagrams for the scenarios so you know how to lay out your board if you want to go that way. But you have just brilliantly painted models and the terrain is outstanding in the pictures that you have. It, it really does, not only do you have great, a, a sense of narrative in setting up and in laying out the scenarios, but then with all of the pictures, with all of the, the actual photographs, the maps, the pictures of miniatures, the paintings, the whole thing, so much life is breathed into this have the very strange urge to paint Falschmeager all of a sudden. And I can't... <laughs> yeah, it's a real labor of love. Um, we figured uh, we're delivering a almost a boutique product, but at an everyday price. Yeah. Um, I think people are going to be really happy when they see the price on the Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. As well as that, um, because we're going to that boutique look, and because we, we wanted it, it was a passion project, we wanted it, this to flow through at every level. And we were lucky enough, um, as you've spoken about, that uh, um, Ken Smith at Ken Smith Fine Art allowed us mm -hmm. to reproduce his oil painting, which is in there, um, beautiful full page spread. Thank you to him for letting us do that. And he did that out of the goodness of his own heart um, and being a war gamer <laughs> um, uh, because he literally was so um, generous. He said anything for a, a war gamer who was also a paratrooper and based on your desire to use this this painting. So thank you so much, Ken. That's awesome. As well as that, um, 
we've really we've gone to town and we've really invested time. One of my favourite things about the hobby is, and I'm going to let Rex um, talk to this in a minute because I know he feels pretty similar. Is really I love wargaming as a spectacle. Yes. When we started off, we we enjoyed um, model railways as well because there was such few publications, I guess, that showed, especially in colour. Um, it, it just it wasn't out there. Um, wargaming that we started off and we enjoyed watching model railways. So we we have this desire almost to take, um, I guess, real photo quality um, pictures of our games. Um, we would like to think that it flowed down in our in our previous YouTube productions. And we've taken everything we learned in there, and, and I'm going to hand over Rex in a minute because he really is a, a master in the photography in this. He's he's done all that, and um, I guess I have a bit of an eye for things. I, I've done a lot of the painting and stuff. Rex has too. Rex has uh, done a lot of the terrain in here, but um, he's done basically all the photography in here, apart from um, a couple of photos for my partner Justine. So Rex, how would you like to um, to talk about your photography and your approach to that? Yeah, well, I guess the first thing to say is it's not, uh, you know, everybody likes different things in Wargaming. You've got the guys that like uh, that like the scenarios. You've got the guys that like the visual aspect. You've got the guys that like the competitive aspect. And you've got the guys that like the historical aspect. So um, we've tried to, uh, to hit on almost all of those with this book. And we've tried to give you the best possible book that we can do. So I've been doing uh, graphic design for... 25 years um i've just realized uh yesterday actually uh <laughs> and so this is the, i guess the 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 pinnacle of what we've uh, what we've produced and we're extremely happy with it we we sort of set out for a goal to not only make something that had great great campaigns fun campaigns um and uh, and a historical background as well but we wanted to make we set out to make the best or one of the best looking publications that we could possibly make and uh, I don't know whether we've whether we're hit on that or not. You can be the judge, but I tell you what, we're pretty happy, aren't we, Dan? Sure. Uh, what do you think about it, Brad? I was going to say, let me be the judge. Then, yes, <laughs> you hit on that, and the twenty-five years of experience shows. The book is beautifully laid out, and you—I mean, I want to touch back on a word that you said a minute ago, Dan. Boutique. This is a beautifully boutique production. There are aspects to this that you just don't get anywhere else. I mean, we haven't even mentioned, you've mentioned the beautiful terrain, but you haven't mentioned that there are guides in the book to create the, the terrain so you can play it. But then you guys have taken that to the next level and included something I've never even seen, although given um, the world of COVID, I'm well, I'm well familiar with QR codes and checking in places, but you have QR codes built into the book that if you scan it, you can then, it takes you to guides and videos that expand the, the interaction with this book beyond just reading it. You can interact in this book in a number of ways that is super exciting and innovative. Yeah, thank you. We wanted the value of the book to transcend just what was on the written page. And we think we've done pretty well with the written page. I certainly am quite mm -hmm. proud of it. But I wanted people to be able to interact with that more. Um, I, had a, I had an idea about this, and Rex, I think, fell off his chair because he couldn't believe that uh, the Luddite that I am, um, I come up with a technological idea. Dan, right, Dan's Rex? the artistic guy of, uh, of Valhalla Games. He's the guy that, uh, that has all the fantastic ideas, and he knows that uh, three small cactus uh, together with a little bit of uh, Rex's patented driveway gravel um, will make will just – absolutely make that that picture perfect <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but i'm the guy that takes the picture 
um, develops it, processes it, and uh, and does all that stuff. But yes, Dan had an idea. One morning he rang me up. He said, I've got an idea, and I nearly did fall off my feet. Yeah, so, so what we've done is, um, once Rex recovered, I explained to him that what, what we should do is, and, and this is what we have done, Basically, you can scan a QR code, uh, the number of scenarios, you can scan a QR code and it will take you to us playing it through. Now, a lot of these were, were playtests, but they're sophisticated playtests. So you can mm -hmm. see the full terrain layout, suggestions for, for how it should look on the tabletop in your home. Um, so we think that adds value. Uh, as well as that, we've also got it for some hobby things. So we've got, uh, we're gonna have some painting guides in there as well, or we have got painting guides in there and those are gonna get added to. So we've got uh, painting uh, British Airborne. We're also gonna have uh, painting Tropical Falschenjäger um, and some more are gonna get added there as well. And, uh, you know, a couple of the items are on our YouTube channel already. However, there is lots more in there that actually are gonna get put on there just so purchases of the book are gonna be able to see them. That's awesome. Well, we really think that, you know, when it gets to um, uh, looking at the terrain, looking how it's laid out, the camera, the camera taking you through it really helps as well as like things like using your brush, um, techniques of how the brush is drawn across material and stuff like that. The close-ups of the terrain and the terrain build, um, we really think that will help you even more and just add value to the, the written page and the photographs. There's a plethora of photographs in there, step-by-steps as well, mm -hmm. walkthroughs, but we really thought it would add to it. Sorry, I didn't actually uh, really answer your question about the photography, Dan. So let's loop back to that a little bit. So one of the things that we did with the photography is we absolutely agonized over the painting and the photography. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a keen photographer and um, depth of field is my middle name. Uh, so all of those, I try and sort of hit all those um, those images to be absolutely everything in focus from one corner of the board to the other corner of the six by four board. And that's that's a task. And, you know, we actually had to, um, over the last three years we've been working on this book, we actually had to come up to speed on some of our photography because um, we were turning out good photos, but we wanted to be turning out the best photos we could. But some of those photos actually tell a funny story too, Dan. Do you want to, um, we've got a historical section that talks about the about the arrival of the Storming Eagles, which is the Volschemager. Mm -hmm. Do you want to tell a bit of a story about the photo that accompanies that? Yeah, so there is a two-page photo uh, at the bottom of that historical section. And being the arrival of the Storming Eagles, of course, the photograph needs to relate. So there is a photograph of... Uh, of two Falschmeger preparing to implane into the uh, the plane to, to conduct their parachute jump mm -hmm. into the area vicinity of Primasol Bridge. Now, a lot of people actually said to me when we sent this out to people for review, they said, how did you get that colorized picture of that? Um, another couple of people actually yeah. said to me, isn't it magnificent how you took those that picture of those uh, well-painted black tree uh, Falschenjäger miniatures and superimposed it somehow on top of that mm -hmm. uh, that colorized Ju-52 in the background. Well, that, the story about that is they're all miniatures. I it's cannot everything. believe that plane is a miniature. Yeah, so it's a one one forty-eight scale plane, and that uh, that belongs to a a friend of ours, a friend of a friend who's become a friend of mine. So thank you very much. Um, who lives in uh, Hamilton in New Zealand, mm -hmm. and uh, I've got a credit for him, a thank you in, in the book there. So it, so you have to spoil us to to read the book, but um, so that is a one forty-eight scale um, Ju fifty-two, exquisitely painted by him. And I had seen it uh, at a previous visit to his house, looking at his um, he's a scale modeler, looking at his his house. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I said, oh, so if I if I brought some some Falschmeger up here, 
uh, any chance for I go to get a photo? And he said, yeah, of course you can. And that was about a year and a half ago. And then, and then what happened was I went to visit Rex and Rex handed me this, uh, this plastic container. Now we'd been to Moab in 2018, I think mm-hmm. it was Rex. Yep. That's right. 2018 and we're at the we're at the bring and buy sale there and i was out of money i i had no disposable cash left i was like ah and i I spotted this little plastic container that had all these black tree miniatures in it and i said Mm -hmm. rex falschmager i i I don't recognize the sculpts here you want to buy these they're they're like um you know pretty unusual sculpts so he bought them and he took them home and we looked up on on youtube i'm sorry up on the internet and it's black tree Mm -hmm. And as you will know, Black Tree of the most delightful little range of Falschmager doing strange things. There's a guy wearing his uh, wearing his parachute, clearly implaning um, with his um, his knee pads on. Mm-hmm. There's another guy who looks as if he's just about to implane, and he's wearing his um, his gloves for parachuting. And he's taking a drink out of a water bottle. He's got a rifle over his shoulder. He looks like he's just about to sling his uh, his parachute on his pack and uh, put it on, ready to implane. It looks like he's taking his last final drink before he does so. Now, Rex didn't paint these up, so a couple, about a year ago, he gave them back to me and uh, and said, oh, I'm never going to paint these. You might as well paint them. And I said, Rex, you're the man, because I've now got a, I've now got a task for these. So I took them home, painted them up, and the end result is that picture that you've seen there, Brad. That's awesome. And I love that there's a story that goes with those miniatures as well. And it came from Moab, which is an event that I know and love as well. Ah, brilliant. Brilliant. But if you re- if you really want to know how the sausage is made, there's a story within the story. So Dan was uh, was coming up to his uh, friend's place in Hamilton, New Zealand, there, and he hadn't got them finished. In fact, he had hardly got them started. So Dan's <laughs> Dan's crossing the ferry between uh, North Island and South Island, in New Zealand. He's painting them on the ferry, and then he's sitting on the ferry car park, and he sends me a photo and says, "Look what I'm doing." And he's painting these miniatures in his car, and the paint's all arrayed across the dashboard of his car. And he's painting these miniatures as he waits for the ferry to unload. And then he drives up to this guy's place. He's got two hours to take the photo, and then that's it. He's he's off to uh, uh, to a military training course, and he's gone for three months. So those photos <laughs> are the nicest painting. Falschmager that I have ever seen right anywhere and Dan painted them in the uh in his car on the way to uh on the way to Hamilton I guess so well painting done. to a, dead, a deadline helps but um mate I, I think I need to rent a car and then go take a ferry to uh to up my painting game because <laughs> if that's what it takes that's outrageously good I yeah I that blows my mind that's amazing because oh, these, these the, are beautifully painted. Thank you. The, the gorilla painter strikes again. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So hopefully uh, we can do justice uh, to each other. Well, Dan and I both have, have complementary skills, and um, Dan's done some great painting. I've done some great modeling between the two of us. Uh, he's done some great writing. I've done, done some great uh, fact-checking and editing. And uh, between the two of us, I think we've, uh, we've created a, a really great product. Hell yeah. Now... I want to make sure we touch on a couple of points before we call it a day. And we are a fair bit from calling it a day, but let's talk about the forces that are, that take part in the battle because it's not just British paratroopers in Falschmega. There are other forces involved and there's some really eclectic, interesting modeling uh, opportunities that you can bring to the table as well with sort of um, thrown together units 
as part of the assaults. Can you talk to us a little bit about the forces that take part in these battles? Yeah, absolutely. So what we start off with is we start off, uh, as we've said already, the the, the British airborne uh, drop in and, uh, and you know, the A glider makes it to the bridge as well. Um, so less than 240 other ranks and 11 officers make it to, to Primasoli Bridge. Now, what they initially face is they face the conscripts of the 213 Coastal Division, the Italian conscripts. Um, now, that's made up basically, a, a, yes, of your conscripted troops, but also some reservist officers and uh, veterans that are, yes, they've been, they've been drummed into service again, but they've actually had quite a bit of time to prepare. So they've prepared um, good fortifications, both on the bridge with the, the Germans' help. Um, there's some excellent pillboxes and excellent defences there. Um, they've got a variety of weapons um, on the bridge, as well as the preparations and the defence they've got of these hills overlooking the uh, the bridge. Mm -hmm. So and, and predominantly uh, Johnny One has the most fortifications on it, uh, the most defences there. And they've got a, a variety of weapons, uh, light howitz on Johnny One, um, MMGs, again at the bridge, MMGs, but also um, Elephantino anti-tank guns as well. Now, so initially, that's who the British seize the bridge from, and that's also how that who they seize the um, uh, Johnny One from, um, because the Falschmager providing an outer ring, a screen, if you like, predominantly to the south. Now, once the Falschmager realised that this is that the British had dropped amongst them inside their ring, if you like, inside their cordon, what they do is they uh, carry reconnaissance throughout the night. They um, they start fighting patrols and they start engaging the British. This is where the scenarios start kicking in, the early scenarios. Then we move to, I suppose, more um, set-piece engagements, uh, deliberate attacks, where the Falschmäger then assault the first. So the first assault that we see from the Falschmäger is on Johnny One, uh, once the British have captured it, and that is a, uh, a deliberate attack by the by the FJ, and um, that's got uh, very interesting, exciting outcomes and variables to it as well. So that swings backwards and forwards. Um, from there. What we see is basically these deliberate attacks between the two, and then we swing to a situation where um, the Germans have lost communications and the uh, the Falschmäger command at uh, Catania, the airfield, then send out, I suppose, uh, probing um, advances by their forces, including a dispatch rider, to work out who actually holds the bridge. Uh, no one is ever more surprised than the guy on that motorcycle, <laughs> right? Because he rides onto the bridge expecting it to be on his side, and boy, was it not. Exactly. Um, he turns around, and I'm pretty sure he broke speed records going back to uh, to Catania Airfield to um, tell Hauptmann Stangenberg back there, um, Captain Stangenberg in, in English, um, basically uh, one of the FJ commanders, what he'd seen. The British now hold the bridge. So Stangenberg um, gets the, the Falschmäger infantry that he can, puts them in trucks, uh, requisitions some trucks off the locals and uh, rustles up what he can find, goes down to the bridge. And this and, is one uh, of my favourite parts of the movie, by the way. <laughs> and when he gets there, the British are waiting for him. Now, with mm -hmm. limited ammunition, they then engage the engage the uh, FJ as they arrive and give the Falschmäger a bloody nose. Now, Holtman Stangenberg is not the sort of man to take that sitting still. So he goes back to uh, the airfield and he gathers up any other infantry he can find, but not only that, he gets clerks, cooks, bottle washers, anyone else in the divisional headquarters that he can find. He gives them a rifle or a weapon, and he go back. He goes back there and he gets his um, veterans to uh, lead the squads of them, and to give them some backbone and some muscle, and intersperses uh, veteran FJ in amongst them, 
and um, they start some very bloody assaults on the uh, on the British positions that are quickly followed up. Now, normally the Germans are well known for counterattacks, but in this case, he basically had waves before the British could replenish um, their ammunition, before they could redistribute it, before they could sort out the casualties and so on, conduct their uh, their battle prep um, between one one contact to the next. Basically, he then assaults again with his veterans after that attack. So he's controlling the tempo and, and getting the British to use all the ammunition. At the same time, he's got artillery coming up uh, in the form of uh, <laughs> of some um, 75 millimeter guns, but also two 88s, uh, direct fire rolled. And they fire both air bursts into slit trenches um, on the south side, but also direct fire into the British positions and the pillboxes that are held by them on the bridge. And they start a sustained and high tempo series of attacks, including flanking maneuvers that are designed to push the bridge, the British off the bridge, and um, and the British basically start taking um, more casualties and expending their ammunition. They're using captured weapons, and uh, we've got some some beautiful pictures that are coming in this book. Some that um, uh, people are going to be really happy with the ability to use captured weapons by the British Airborne. Because at one point, right, they the everything seems to be going wrong for the British. Like things are just not working out, and yet they find an abandoned set of howitzer or not howitzers, um, mortars that the Italians had left, and they were able to use them later in the battle. Spoilers to discourage trucks coming from the airfield before they themselves become the target of artillery from the other side. Yeah, well read, Brett. Absolutely. You're spot on there. Um, so basically, these frustrated mortarmen that had been cross-trained on various Axis weapons but did not have their mortars with them, only one mortar um, was was intact and made it. All the pieces, components made it to the bridge. Um, so these frustrated mortarmen, especially in the 2nd Parachute Battalion up on Johnny 1, and between Johnny 1 and Johnny 2 features, they found uh, this battery of Italian um light howitzers that have been left there mm-hmm. and because uh, they're cross training they uh they then engaged and uh and a um naval bombardment detachment officer called via hodge who's an extremely important man to the story oh yeah um via hodge uh broke up the initial falschmager attack as the british are being overrun on johnny uh johnny one um, he assembled from various broken wireless sets, assembled one that finally worked, um, established contact with uh, HMS Newfoundland out to sea and brought in six-inch guns to break up the Falschmager attack, basically brought it into their own position and, and uh, broke them up and drove them off. Yeah, if you're going to call in an air or an artillery strike, that is the artillery strike you want to call in, um, especially if you are up against the wall like that. To, to be able to... I mean, it's so cinematic to be able to finally put together the set to make the radio work, to call that in. And there's only one man that can do it because no one else made it. Um, It's, yeah, it's just yet another part of the story that is just one of a kind and completely out of something, an outrageous action movie. It is wonderful. You couldn't make this stuff up, could you? I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, like they went and found artillery they just mm-hmm. found it so so not the you know not the not the medics or the mm mmg guys or the you know or anybody else the guys that were trained for that weapon just mm-hmm. found that weapon um it's it's better than a movie yeah and once the um once the mortarman had it you can imagine the vengeance of a bunch of guys who knew they were outnumbered they'd almost just been overrun 
and uh, and then had then found these assets, and then they had uh, the observer, um, Veer Hodge was able to observe for them on the top of the feature, and uh, they could literally communicate by passing word down um, through a chain of bodies to them, and uh, and they were able to engage um, Stangenberg's initial convoy that came up with a few few rounds that they had at their disposal and uh, help break up their attack. Well, don't give it all away, Dan, but I think you should definitely talk <laughs> about the RDT. So do I, because not only did the uh, the Italian 213 Coastal Division there, Brad, but uh, some old friends of yours were on the scene as well. Oh, yeah. So um, this is a part that I found really interesting to research, actually. Uh, a lot of historical, I guess, accounts don't mention it. But um, luckily, with the help of uh, some translations from... Um, my Italian friend Marco, I managed to find a little bit more detail about what happened here. So basically the uh, 10th Arditi Regiment, um, who for those people who are not quite too sure who they are, this is uh, what some people refer to as the Italian version of the Long Range Desert Group. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are the guys in the beach buggies, the AS-42s, heavily armed with um, a variety of weapons bristling off them. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the Germans asked them for support and attack on the bridge, and um, the Arditi lived up to their uh, their their motto, um, which we have used as a scenario uh, uh, a scenario name. They they've called in their motto they're called the Daring Ones. That's right. And and that is the uh, that is the name of that scenario. And the Arditi mounted a determined attack on the British positions, designed to um, disrupt, um, use as much ammunition as possible and uh, drive a bit of a wedge between the, the, the British defence as far as they could. Maybe, maybe if they were very lucky, drive them off the northern end. And what actually happened was the Arditi penetrated all the way across the bridge, and we found a photograph that, uh, due to some, some uh, battlefield detection, we felt like uh, battlefield detectives at various stages mm -hmm. during the, um, the photographs and the research of this, we actually um, have placed the photograph on the southern of a wrecked AS-42 on the southern side of the bridge, the southeastern side of the bridge. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the AS-42, you'll know that I've talked about this on countless episodes of both this podcast and other ones that I'm a part of. It is also known as the Auto Sahariana. From, um, if it's one of the armored cars and armies of Italy and other minor powers. It is one of my favorite vehicles in the game. And the fact that it actually appears in history and is in this book just is the cherry on top. It's brilliant. And if you're not familiar with it, go and have a look on YouTube. Uh, in fact, Go and have a look at our go and have a look at our launch video uh, for the Kickstarter because it's in there. But the um, the it's a crazy looking vehicle. You've not seen anything like it before in any in any other army. It is truly it's, science fiction, right? For those of you familiar with Doctor Doodle, it's like the push me pull you of uh, light armored fighting vehicles yes. or light, light <laughs> non armored fighting vehicles, as the case may be. It looks like it could drive in any direction. It does, and it's got those massive, as you say, moon buggy tires. There's just no other way of putting that. It's like a bucket <laughs> with giant moon buggy tires sunk into the side. And then what also gives us part of it its outlandish appearance is it. it's just, I say it's a bucket because it doesn't have a roof. It's just an open top that everyone sort of sits in. It, of course, has the windscreen that goes up and down. But in front of the windscreen is yet another one of those giant moon buggy tires that is <laughs> sunk yeah. into the into the hood. But then both sides are lined with, at least in the desert, they were lined with jerry cans of various descriptions filled with um, water and fuel. Of course, the, the later version, the one that you have in your book, of course, I believe is the one 
the later version of that that had fewer cans but had storage units on either side, if I'm getting that right. Yeah, so we have um, so I have got a uh, a number of them painted up for the photographs in the book, and um, we've got two of the ones that were introduced earlier, and we have one. Uh, within our our unit, our squadron of these vehicles, mm-hmm. um, our platoon of them, we've got one that is the later one because it was just introduced um, immediately during this, and then the Italian campaign they started bringing out greater numbers, and they then moved on to the Eastern Front as well. I can hear yes, uh, mouse um, clickings all around the world as people order <laughs> new uh, new AS forty twos from uh, from various internet locations. Because uh, Warlord Warlord makes ex- an excellent one. Uh, Company B makes a couple. They have the different weapon options. And of course, if you want the newer version with the fewer jerry cans, that would be Blitzkrieg miniatures, right? Correct, yes. Um, Company B, I believe that's the one that comes with the sand traps as well. It and does. the and the the manned uh, breeder cannon on the back it and does. an armored an armored windscreen. So if that's if that's your uh, flavor, then that's something that the others don't. Each each manufacturer's got something that the others don't have, and they're, they're all all worthwhile and all bring something different and, and nice to the table. So we have that force as well, which is a great opportunity to get something tasty onto the table. That's Italian players. Then have got, I guess, both extremes of their veterancy. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got different uniforms going on, different sort of painting styles. You know, Italian players so a wealth of fun and enjoyment there. Um, and as well as that, some of the uh, some of the scenarios we have as well, um, by necessity, by the way they actually fought at the time, we've actually said if your Italian army has, say, for instance, in bolt action, if you've got national rules, well, not all scenarios really take those national rules into account because they were already dug in. Right. Um, the British were advancing in 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 uh, night time. There was no way they were going to stop them from running. Um, you know, and really each unit had to find the courage to, to fight on itself. And so just by way of pins and mechanics uh, that your game might use, um, natural friction of what, what uh, the player can roll if they're playing, say, chain of command and stuff like that, mm-hmm. that will dictate whether each unit stands or falls or, or fights to the last round or, or capitulates rather than any national rule requirement. And we have some uh, some unique units in the book as well. Via Hodge, as you as you mentioned before, is a is a great character for the book, and uh, and as well as that, we'd have what you would know in bold action as selectors, and they specify what you can and can't take in some scenarios. In other scenarios, it's exactly prescribed so that it can flow follow the flow of the historical battle. Exactly. Absolutely, we've got a um, we've got a couple of new units in there which I'll touch on as well. Um, so I suppose I've spoken about the start of the battle and then we moved into the deliberate attacks and now the last phase of the battle, the campaign, really comes into the arrival of the uh, the um, the ground forces uh, as opposed to airborne forces of the British arriving on the scene. Um, and this is provided by the 50th Division and uh, in this case 151 Brigade, which is made up of um, the Durham Light Infantry and also um, support from the uh, Royal Tank Regiment in the County of London Yeomanry, based in their Shermans, um, and they've got priests and so on and so forth with them. So what we see there is we move from, um, therefore, throughout the campaign from ad hoc engagements into deliberate attacks and uh, defence, and then uh, in the backwards and forwards and the excitement that goes through that into the final part, which is the Germans hold the bridge, and the British are attempting to get it off them using these conventional set-piece attacks and defence that you might expect 
I'm um, using those brig weapons to bear armor versus the 88s, infantry versus infantry, trying to outflank each other, trying to hold on to this bridge, and it's real tooth and nail stuff. It's a great opportunity for all these forces that people have got sitting at home, or they want to paint up, these exciting forces to pull them off the shelf. There's so much in this campaign, just this engagement for the Primasol Bridge that um, I think people are going to be really surprised with if they didn't know, and they're going to really enjoy if they did know that they can employ all these forces in our campaign. Exactly. It is It is a, a wide span of forces that, that take place in all 11 scenarios that, you know, as you say, it, you see both extremes from a variety of nations. You see a variety of unit types. You see different vehicles. Um, you see different weapons being used. This is a really dynamic, interesting battle that I knew nothing about until you guys really brought this to light for me. And man, has it really come to life? And it's is it weird that in my excitement for this, it also has me now thinking, ooh, Market Garden. Oh. <laughs> uh, it is definitely getting my World War II juices flowing, to quote uh, another member of this podcast at times. And man, I'm, I'm so excited for this book. Now, I will come back to the contents of the book, but I do want to say that if you are listening to this, the book should be in Kickstarter as of now or in the next couple of hours if you got in early it kicks off November 11th, 2021, and it runs until December 11th, 2021. The book itself, um, we don't have a final page count yet, but uh, maybe you guys do, but I, I haven't seen that. Um, but there is, as we talked about, the really beautifully laid out sort of introduction with all the historical background that really helps set the scene. Then we have rules for playing the campaign through. We have our 11 scenarios. And then what's really nice is there's a really nice historical wrap-up that tells you about how it actually played through. So you actually get a sense of closure on it. Um, it makes the book a really interesting and fun read. Now, you guys have also mentioned there are the theater selectors and new units um, different army lists that you can use throughout the scenarios that you can use on the tabletop. And I'm sure you can use a lot of those in fun, casual games as well um, because they are based on history and actual historical vehicles, uh, equipment, loadouts, and units that you know yeah. are the basis of everything we put on the tabletop anyway. Um, sure. But then we also have this wonderful hobby content section. So we have how to bridge how to build the bridge itself it's not just a traditional box bridge there is a little bit more to it but then if you combine that to with the terrain around especially the river itself as we said before it is a pivotal piece of um of how this or the scenarios will play albeit not everything involves the river and the bridge but they're important um, clearly, it says it in the name. Uh, and we have the big the big hill terrain project, so you can have the Johnnies. And then you have a reference section at the end. Now, not only do we have scenario-specific rules, you have something really cool in here called the Quartermaster Store. Can you guys go into what that is and why that is so helpful? Because I think it's great. Oh, thanks very much, Brad. So, yeah, for, for those listeners back home. So what we have in the scenarios is we have various items of 
tokens, effects that we've we've literally made to put on the table. So, for instance, we have um, smoke screens. We have a fire for one of the scenarios based on the fact that actually uh, Johnny One actually uh, fire started throughout the engagement on there. So the quartermaster stores allow us to remove descriptions of all those um, pieces of uh, terrain that have an in-play effect, um, tokens, um, are those type of stuff that the players will need to use to, to play the scenarios. We've put it all in one place. We just, it doesn't slow us down those scenarios. We just uh, say what it is, reference to go to the quartermaster store section and find it. The quartermaster stores being the place where you withdraw all your equipment from, of course, in the, uh, in the army. Um, and when you go there, you'll find something. It might say, say, a uh, smoke marker, and it'll give a description of a smoke marker. It'll say something like um, a fire marker, and it'll say something like uh, six inches long and uh, two inches high. And, you know, you could make it like this and paint it like this. Uh, a brief description of that. It might describe exactly how to do um, your cards for card activation and, and tips to try and uh, utilize that so they don't become destroyed and stuff like that. It's a real um, in-game effects, but but done in a... Uh, if it's literally, if it's got to be put on the table, how it's made and how it's made to be beautiful to, to I guess, accent your, your gameplay and not just be something that you've slapped down at two seconds notice. Exactly, exactly. Now, I do want to draw a big underline under this. A lot of times when people are talking about a Kickstarter that's about to launch, it's to fund something that needs to be created or something that is partially in development. Now, this is something that you guys have put, as you said at the beginning, three long years of hard work into. This is something that is essentially done. Um, and what you are kickstarting is just the publication of something that is already finished. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. There's nothing more frustrating than, uh, than, than going for a kickstarter and you get all excited about it. And then it just goes dead for six months or, or a year or whatever. And you kind of wonder if you're ever going to get your stuff. Right. I'm sure... We've all played that game. Mm-hmm. But um, Dan and I have been working on this for three years, as we say. Uh, we have we are largely complete. We're, it's all written. Um, if Dan would stop saying to me, look, uh, that's an amazing photo. Can we uh, make that a little bit bigger and just push that over and make the document two more pages longer? <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll be finalized. But we're looking around, at around, around the 90 pages at this point. Um, but it's 90 pages packed, packed, packed yeah. with information. And it's it's largely done. Uh, we're still sh- shooting some studio photos to, uh, to to fill out some areas that we've decided that need some visual some visual impact. But uh, it's it's largely done, and it's going to be shipping. We plan to have it shipping out to people in about March next year, March 2022. So somewhere around there, perhaps end of February, perhaps end of March. Just depends on printers. Um, we've done that deliberately. Um, to give us to give us plenty of time to just absolutely get everything exactly as we want it, and to to really avoid that Christmas postage thing. We don't want, you know, we don't want boxes mm-hmm. and boxes and boxes of boxes sitting in post offices over over Christmas break. Um, we want people to get their stuff in a reasonable amount of time. We've got the COVID thing now; it's starting to improve in terms of postage. We've been advised, but um, we're we're just trying to keep it clear of that. So yeah, we're really really excited. We're so excited that. Uh, that uh, you're going to have to come around for a game, Brad. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, now that, you know, Melbourne's opened up, I can possibly even go somewhere that isn't, you know, my house. Sounds great. 
But um, Rex, I think you're um, not giving yourself enough credit here because I suppose launching it when we did, we've, we've launched it for two reasons, uh, two more reasons what Rex said. So we're launching on the 11th because it's Armistice Day. So that's a bit of a nod to the veterans um, of our past. But uh, I guess we finish it at a time we think is good for people as well because we're war gamers, we've we got families as well. Um, so we finish it two weeks before, generally a lot of people's paydays. So you can get the payment out of the way before Christmas. We're trying to, you know, you don't have to worry about that then. It's a busy time for everyone. So we try to behave like, I guess, courteous, you know, everyday war gamers the way we'd like to think we try to do that. But the, the, the launching of the way we have done is allowed something else to happen yes. because we've We've seen some uh, some some plastic uh, goodness come out on the market, and Rex, you've been talking to people. So, would you like to tell us uh, what we're going to offer to our early birds as well for our Kickstarter? So, Brad, you're getting the scoop on this because Ooh, uh, we've only secured this deal in the last uh, four hours or so. Oh wow! Um, so okay, we are, that fresh. We are, yeah, we're fresh. We're pr proud to uh, to announce that we're going to be giving away a free War Games Atlantic sprue uh, with the first 30 books uh, that get sold on the Kickstarter. So that's an that's Italian awesome. sprue. Um, they're fantastic new Italian sprues that uh, uh, that they've been uh, showing images of here, there, and everywhere. And uh, we're going to be getting those, painting some up, and we might even get them in the book, Dan, if you're uh, if you're fast on the brush. Mm -hmm. But uh, Oh, I, oh, that's my commitment to War Games Atlantic. If they, um, in return for them doing this, I would love people to see them um, painted up in our in our uh, scenery, in the scenario sort of um, stage pictures that we have. So we're happy to do that in return for them um, giving some of these for people to be able to do the same at home. So if they can get to me in time, absolutely, they will be painted. And they will be in the book for people. And I intend to do a little uh, conversion as well on them. Um, and I'd like to show people how they can... Um, uh, just by doing uh, some baggy trousers and so on, that we can uh, make some of them look like the, um, from I guess the traditional um, Italian uniforms into the baggy trousers Aditi uh, uniforms mm -hmm. as well. I was going to ask, are you going to RDD those up? Um, <laughs> but hey, I guess the only thing, if you want to paint them up to put them in the book, is just make sure that you have some sort of car to paint in and some sort of ferry to go, and then you'll be, <laughs> you know, Bob will be your uncle. You'll be set. Yep, definitely. Yeah. But uh, that that's being provided for uh, for absolutely free of charge um, from Wargames awesome. Atlantic. They just want to get their product out there. Um, they uh, they they wholeheartedly believe in their product, and and they said to us, "Hey, we'll we'll just give this to you for free. Um, get it out there, so get it into people's hands, give them a chance to uh, have a look at how good our models are, and uh, and for us, it's a bonus because we get to uh, to give somebody something extra, as well as a great book, as well as fantastic photos." as well as uh, QR codes and online painting guides and YouTube, you get some plastic. So good, man. So good. Well, guys, I can clear, I can say, because I've seen the, the, the pre-production preview of this book. Now, I've, it's only parts of the book. I haven't, I haven't seen the whole thing. But having seen what you guys have handed me, look, I'll be honest. I was a little skeptical when I first heard it. Campaign book, you know, works for a bunch of games. Cool. All right. You know. I've seen stuff like that before, but when I actually printed what you sent me and then started flipping through it, my jaw hit the ground. This is outstanding work, and I look forward to not only backing this Kickstarter myself to get the book because it's awesome. I'm really looking forward and hoping that this is the beginning of something wonderful and we might see more of these in the future, although I do understand 
three years of work went into this. Well, we've um, on the front cover, it says, uh, I believe it says campaign supplement number one. It does. (laughs) And that's what got me thinking. um, We've look, we've uh, we've given this the due attention that it deserves. So we haven't been uh, secretly working on another one simultaneously. There's only uh, there's only so much uh, life that we've got to to put into it. We've Mm -hmm. given this everything and we think it deserved that. But uh, who knows the future? There's a few things we'd like to, to discover and bring to other people as well. Oh, man, I can't wait. I can't wait. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on today. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk about this. And as I said, man, when I opened the book and I took a look at what's in it, phenomenal. I cannot wait to see the whole finished product. And more to the point, I can't wait to get some of my Italians on the tabletop against Lee Avery, who lives down the street with his (laughs) British paratroopers. This is going to be awesome. So good. All right, maybe uh, the best place to uh, to end this from my perspective, Brad, is just to uh, read you something that uh, that Dan's written from the book, or more importantly, even that's uh, that's a historical account. Uh, so here goes. You ready? Yes. So the battle became more heated and desperate at every position. One Falshimaga, Herman Custer, who was a veteran of battles from the Eastern Front, rode home to his family. They, the British Paris fought like tigers and took it with terrible losses. The fighting was horrific with men milling around and shooting and bayoneting each other. They were so close together. I have never seen men fight one another the way that both sides fought in battle. As positions fell, the British became aware of the new weapons being employed against them. Uh, this is the this is the preview to the... Uh... False Patron. The false patron is what it's called. Yep. So this uh, uh, this this book has the um, or this this engagement has the the perhaps one of the first uses of the predecessors of the uh, Panzerfaust there. So the 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 Falschmager brought with them the Falschmager brought with them a box. Um, we believe there's only six employed, but mm-hmm. the uh, the false patron, the first version of the Panzerfaust, they're using them directly against the the pillboxes and the bunkers on the bridge. And then it goes on again, a quote, the final blow was to was from the shoulder-fired Panzerfaust anti-tank rockets. They took out the bunker on my left, and then it was my turn. So uh, ValhallaGames.net forward slash Kickstarter mm-hmm. should take you direct to the Kickstarter page. And uh, as you say, it's either live right now or it'll be going live tomorrow, depending on where you are and uh, all of those worldwide considerations. That's right. And it'll be running until December 11th, gang. So as you say, that gives you a couple of pay periods so you can make sure you got the cash. It's pre-Christmas. It, yeah, I'm so excited. Can't wait. Oh, Thanks thank very, very much, much. Brad. Thanks for, your, thanks for your time this afternoon, and uh, it's been great sitting on this side, and uh, it'll be a bit strange listening to our voices next to yours instead of just yelling things at the radio um, or the podcast, so to speak. But um, thanks very much, and uh, stay classy, cast ice. Oh, man, you know how we roll. Guys, thank you very much for listening to this. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time both to to hear about this great book and to, to talk about history it's something that uh, through podcasts like the Ghost Army podcast that I've been particularly passionate about in the past, and it's something that I'm looking forward to doing more of in 2022, 2021, and 2020. did get a little COVID grim, uh, but 
man, this is exactly the kind of content that I'm hoping to do more of going forward. And you guys have been the perfect guests. Thank you again for coming on. And thank you at home for listening. Guys, I think it's about that time we go with what old Casey says. When you're playing the games that we know and love, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than that, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night.